Hey, what's up, party people? This is Mike, and welcome to the Mike Mantel Podcast. This podcast is a place where I'm exploring just the depths of wisdom around people who are plowing forward the way and pioneering and doing big things in today's intimacy movement, personal growth movement, and consciousness movement. And today I spoke with a lady named Alexandra Stockwell. And Alexandra is MD. She used to be a doctor, and that is still part of her just identity and uh, life framework. And she's a coach and a teacher of coaches and a trainer of coaches. She specializes in coaching couples who want to have more passion and connection and electricity and juiciness, which is a word she often uses in their relationship. And I met Alexandra a couple years ago and the first coaching training I did actually was with, was led by her and a colleague of hers named Ken Blackman who I'll probably have Ken on the show at some point. He's a really interesting fella as well. And yeah, she was great. She uh, really was a teacher and mentor for me back then and just has continued to be a positive presence in my life. In the episode today, we talked about her, I guess you could say spiritual journey of how her interest in spirituality emerged as a child in a family of eclectically curious viewpoints and how eventually she found her way into investigating intimacy and connection and what makes for the most fulfilling and enlivening connections in partnership and so then we explored a lot of her philosophy and practice around partnership and how sex can be a microcosm of the rest of the relationship. Talked about how often folks will idolize the power of compromise in relationship, but she often sees that that is just a case of partners both dampening their own sense of desire. And so it was really cool to hear about her perspective on what makes for the most exciting and alive relationships. I would like to thank you for listening to the podcast episode today. I appreciate the support, appreciate the curiosity. If you know someone who might be intrigued by the content of this episode around conscious partnerships, I encourage you to send it their way. And also, if you want to support the podcast, illuminating some amount of stars on iTunes or any other listening platform would be quite appreciated on my end. All right, that's all I got for the intro for today. I hope you have a pleasant and stimulating and fulfilling listening experience. And for the rest of today, I hope that you just have a good time. You know, just have fun today. Fun is great. (laughs) Fun's really great. I hope you have lots of fun. Tax season is over. Woohoo! Hope you enjoyed doing your taxes, (laughs) or that at least it wasn't too bad. Uh, All right, people, I will see you in there. Enjoy the conversation with Alexandra Stockwell. 
Yeah. So the first thing I wanted to ask, I guess, just to give context of who you are in the world in this chapter of your life, how would you describe what you do or where you're finding passion in this moment of your human experience? Well, when I look at it in terms of where I'm finding passion, it's a a beautiful braid with a few different strands, which are all in relationship to one another. So I find tremendous passion coaching couples and facilitating their growth, typically from fairly conflict-free relationships. The relationships are conflict-free and passion-free. And I am truly passionate about teaching them how to create more emotional intimacy and sensual passion in the context of a committed relationship. I'm deeply passionate about changing the cultural narrative around long-term relationships instead of being something where passion goes to die, that they really are a portal into the most exquisite connection. I'm also passionate about my husband. We've been married for 23 years and um, a lot of what I offer couples comes from what I've learned in my marriage and for my marriage. I also, uh, I have four children. My oldest is 22. My youngest is seven. So I've been mothering a long time and have a long time of hands-on mothering yet to come. It just would be incomplete not to throw in that I'm a physician. I don't practice medicine anymore, but I was in medicine for 12 years and I bring the gravity and expertise that comes from having gone to medical school, done my training and practiced medicine for a while. Yeah, there's a bunch of stuff in there I want to return to in more depth, but I I want to go back in time and then find our way back into the present because I've known you for... Wow, maybe like two years now. Could it really be that long? Jeez, that's that's kind of terrifying. Um, but anyways, I've known you for about two years, and I've been just really curious about your life story and how you have found your way into who you are right now. And I have little snippets of of things that I know about you. But one place I'm curious to start, and I feel like this goes back to your childhood, from what I know. But I'm curious when either. When did you first get awoken into spirituality, whatever that word means to you? Wow. Um, It's interesting to me. I'll just share that this really is not anything anybody used to ask me about, and it's coming up again and again. I actually gave my first talk on my spiritual journey. So it's interesting to me that you went right for that. Uh, I'm going to give a little bit of a meandering answer. And one of the reasons it's meandering is because, you know, so often when we talk about things, even if it's fresh in the moment that we say it, it's very familiar. And really my spirituality has been extremely intimate and private. And it's been very lush, but it's just been for me. And I'm going to give you some more context for why that is the case. So Uh, my parents were meaning junkies. They, they wanted what was meaningful. And, um, so 
my father actually uh, went to MIT when he was 16. He became a professor at Cooper Union in uh, Manhattan when he was 22. And he was on his way to um, a long academic career as a graduate level physicist. And Definitely due to some career failures, but also his nature, he decided to um, teach in a Waldorf high school in order to impact people when they were growing, because by the time they got to college and grad- graduate school, they were already pretty formed in a lot of ways. And um, even though he was a scientist, he was always wrestling with how to truly be scientific and not trapped in mechanical thinking. Uh, that's my father. Then my, oh, and um, I was born in 1968. I'm 50 years old. And when my parents, who had intended to never have children, uh, part of their response to the 60s that the world is a place where people suffer and they did not want someone into the world to suffer. But when they found out that I was on my way, uh, they, studied Lama's childbirth with Elizabeth Bing, who brought Lama's from France to the United States. And um, I was delivered by the only OBGYN in all of New York City who was doing natural childbirth at that time. And um, in 1968, fathers didn't attend births. And my father actually had to sign a contract saying, this is at NYU hospital, that um, if if he had a heart attack, he wouldn't sue the hospital because there was a question of whether men witnessing birth would have heart attacks. So uh, my mother loved English literature and uh, because she loved it, decided not to study it when she went to Brown. She thought that would make it dry and academic. And so uh, she majored in philosophy, but she also cared about the real world. So after she graduated, she worked for the welfare department and uh, went on to teach philosophy in community college. Anyway, there are all these stories I'm really trying to communicate to you that I grew up in a context where my parents did the unconventional thing. They turned away from stable jobs and stable prestige in order to do meaningful things, although my grandparents had made the opposite decisions. and. Um, Growing up, one of my closest relatives, whom I knew for 25 years because she lived to 104, was my great-grandmother, who's an Orthodox Jew. And so Orthodox Judaism and the stability of knowing where she was going to be every Saturday, that's a piece of my spirituality. But so also uh, is my mother, who in seeking meaning when I was four years old, she, she thought religion was important for children. And so she started lighting candles and it wasn't meaningful for her. And so about once a year, we would go visit some religious organization of some kind to see if that would be a fit. And when I was 10 years old, we went to um, an alternative intellectual, not not really new age, that's not quite right, because it was too academic and so forth. But in any case, a Christian religion. And eventually, my mother went ahead and converted and went to seminary and was ordained and at the age of 50 became a minister and had a congregation 
uh, until she died around her 60th. Really? That's a heck of a shift. it w- it wasn't for her, but from the outside, it looks like it. So when you ask me about my spirituality, um, I'm telling all of these family stories, which are actually really on topic because uh, like another piece is that uh, my father, my mother, and my stepfather for a few years were all very good friends. It- before my parents' divorce and after my mother's marriage to my stepfather. And he was an artist. She was a philosopher. And my father was a scientist. And they had loads of conversations looking for the kind of mutual fructification of their different disciplines and different ways their minds had been trained. And so my spiritual journey really began being exposed to kind of like the Baskin Robbins compliment of spiritual intentionality and uh, practice. And I never really was forced. I, I don't, I don't recall anyone particularly having an agenda for me in this arena. When I was in ninth grade, uh, I had a classmate who lived on an ashram with, uh, I don't know, 300 people. And except for the children, they all wore these orange and red robes. And she wanted to have a sleepover. And her parents knew that that just wasn't really going to work for any other children and any other family except for me. And so I went and um, spent the weekend as the sleepover because I was going to be open and non-judgmental, And I was. It a fascinating experience. So, so I feel like my spirituality was born of a, a love and connection with many people with deep conviction of many different flavors. And all of that is to say that um, I never have really worn my spirituality on my sleeve. It's been much more private and largely nonverbal. I'm a pretty verbal person, but in my communion with spirit it's it's more private it's less verbal and um it feels a little bit more like air yeah i'm wondering if there's a reason why for you uh your connection to spirituality has felt like something private and not to wear on your sleeve just because i mean i know it can take so many different forms for everyone but for some folks, it, I don't know, anyone going who's living in an ashram, like that's, you know, some equal level of connection, but there's some way in which it's important for it to be their identity or, or something like that. And I'm wondering if, if there's a, a reason why it's felt like um, having it in private has been resonant for, for you. Well, what I used to think is that when people got involved with, organized organized belief systems. I don't just mean religion in terms of churches, but also in terms of um, spiritual beliefs, like anything that people bond over. Uh, like so many people that I know yearn for community and aspire to be in community. And honestly, I've had an allergy to that. I think it surprises people because I am in my presence communally oriented and inclusive, but 
I have seen so many people in so many different contexts lose themselves in community. I mean, since I was a little girl, because um, my parents were involved with um, anthroposophy. I'm not sure if you're familiar with mm, that. But yeah, is that Steiner? Yeah, but like most of what's available now, I think of as Steiner light. Like this was, this mm, was kind of real like deal. Whatever, yeah, like <laughs> it's just not really available anymore. Mm. The way that that they practiced it, and and I I learned a lot of my basic spiritual clairvoyant truths um, sitting at the top of the stairs, eavesdropping on my parents' study groups, which they held, my mother and stepfather at a study group every Thursday evening. And actually before that, starting when I was six years old, we used to go every Saturday morning to a study group and my brother and I would have uh, this German black bread and uh, you know, be able to color while the adults had these pretty esoteric conversations. So, but, but over and over, whether it's um, spiritual or religious or academic and intellectual or sexual or even a farming community, I, I appreciate the connection and the common vision and all of the obvious benefits of community. But having been intimately exposed to many communities i have yet to experience one where individuals don't end up giving up something of themselves in order to really participate and i really um i really didn't want to be giving up something important in who i am and so um i think that's really the 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 depth of the answer about keeping it yeah. private that's such an interesting perspective. I, I just feel like in m many of the circles that I run in, community has become this real uh, like hot topic where it seems like a lot of people are have this idea that returning to community is like the answer. Or at least I, I sense that a lot of people have that thought. But I don't know. It's kind of cool to hear your perspective. It's just it's nice to hear people who have uh, opinions that are different than what is popular, I suppose. Yeah. And, you know, it's not like a big cause for me. I don't feel particularly radical about it. And I also know loads of people who are looking for community, want to live in community, want to build community. And, and it just like washes out the other side. It, there's not a lot of charge. It's just really not interesting to me. Yeah. So a, a thing I was wondering also, as you were talking about spirituality, your relationship there too, and the work that you do now, is is there a link in those two? Like, do you find that working in intimacy and relationships, is that an expression of your connection with spirituality or do they feel like separate separate things for you? I, I believe it is. Um, my very favorite personal growth saying is how you do anything is how you do everything. So I think it would be artificial to say it isn't, but it wasn't anything that I was consciously pursuing. I'll say more about it, but I'm realizing thinking of the part of the conversation we just concluded that I, in all fairness, I do have a family of six, which is its own little community. And I think it's really different to take this stance that I have on community when I have a husband and four children than if I were more of a loner. So just to, just to say that, but yeah, fair um, caveat. <laughs> yeah. So what I 
do in my work with couples and individuals, and honestly, I've trained a lot of coaches. I've overseen the certification process for about a thousand coaches, and I currently have a mastermind for coaches. And whether I'm working with coaches or um, individuals or couples, in one way or another, my focus is on learning resonant, authentic connection. So connection where you bring all of yourself, not in every moment, but there's no part of you that you need to leave aside. And um, like the, the thing that I that I coach couples to aspire to and absolutely can teach them to create is how to use absolutely anything that arises and include it, use it to create more connection. So in creating more connection between two separate beings, um, I am expressing my spirituality. I am sharing my spiritual conviction, but it is extremely indirect because I'm doing it in the language of emotional intimacy and sensual passion. Mm, mm -hmm. And I'm wondering when this passion for exploring the depths of authentic connection, intimacy, sensual passion, when did that start to emerge as a kind of the, the focal point of your, your path and offerings? Well, uh, I never would have imagined I would be here. That's for sure. I, uh, I did not, it, despite describing my family as I have in terms of um, intellectual adventure, um, I never discussed sex with my mother until after I'd had two children. Uh, you know, there just was not a lot of direct attention on this topic. And um, I was in my, I guess, late 30s, and I had my own holistic medical practice. I loved practicing medicine. I had a strong bedside manner, and I loved the privilege of being with people in everyday health issues and in really um, intense moments, birth and terminal diagnoses and so forth. And there really was nothing wrong. There really was nothing wrong. And I'd worked hard and I'd arrived. I had not stockpiled a lot of money, but otherwise I, I had a loving husband I adored. I had children. I had my work. My work was set up in a really great way. And I thought, okay, you know, here I am. But I didn't actually feel that way. And I was aware that I prioritized my patients over my family and my family over myself. And I tried a lot of different things to kind of correct that. And it was definitely not an issue of overwhelm or time management because I knew how to get a lot done. But there's a way in which I knew if I continued living that way for another one, two, three decades, I would feel depleted and generally resentful. And so I tried a lot of different 
ways, you know, to schedule self-care time and all kinds of things. And once again, I just, you know, found myself in the same situation. And so over about six months, I dialed down my practice and I told everyone I was going on sabbatical, except myself and my husband, we knew I was done. And um, I thought I'd get a fresh start. And the funniest thing happened because three months later, I was overseeing this project at my children's school, writing a 40 page document, supervising eight or 10 people. And I basically had recreated the exact same situation, but it was volunteer. And I was devastated. And I also was reinvigorated in my clarity that I needed to get this straight. So I went on this path. Um, I took a lot of different personal growth workshops. Uh, it wasn't Tony Robbins, but Peak Potentials was just like that. I uh, went to the School of Womanly Arts with Mama Gina. I, I got a Nia White Belt. I, um, I had some very deep clairvoyant spiritual training. I just, I did all kinds of different things, just kind of following one thing after another and integrating it. And through this journey ended up really yearning to understand and uh, enjoy my own sensuality and sexuality and to really, um, experience a kind of intimacy and communion with my husband, which I always knew was possible, but we were not living. And so I took a course, which at the same time was a coach training, which really didn't matter to me. I didn't even know what a coach was other than, you know, a sports coach. And I went for my own growth and sensual reclamation. And I just went to the lab one day and I understood what coaching was and I just found it so amazing. And I knew I'd come home because one of the things in practicing medicine is, is it's very important to be professional and essentially have a personal barrier between me and my patients. And in coaching, I really could draw on all of myself while still being professional. Um, and I guess the, the one additional thing I want to say about this is that when I went on these various trainings and worked with different people and so forth, I didn't encounter anybody who was married with children. There were some single parents, some people married without children, mostly, you know, people were young or in various polyamorous configurations or, and uh, there just wasn't anybody who was, I don't think of myself as conventional, but I live a conventional life. There wasn't anybody who was married with children and busy in the normal way. And um, in fact, I didn't tell anybody I was married. I didn't tell anybody I had children for the longest time because it felt like a barrier. I wanted to connect on the terms of the context that we were meeting. But I took all this edgy, intense, unconventional experience and absolutely integrated it and applied it in my now 23-year marriage, four kids, working professional. And I 
draw on those experiences and offer the learning to people because many of my clients wouldn't actually go have those experiences, but I'm able to bring the lessons for them to apply in the context of their life and make it more accessible. It's kind of funny being immersed. I am very immersed in all these personal growthy communities. And there's a there's an easy way for it to seem like the way that people live in here, like they've got it figured out. This is the answer. But it is, I guess, as with any group or community, it's it's quite homogenous in many ways. I mean, I think what you're pointing to is a big way. And I just notice this is kind of an aside, but I notice all the, the personal growth community is, to me, out of touch with different parts of reality that are important. I guess particularly one thing that's been coming up in my life is just investigating privilege and context of privilege. And that's just not a conversation that happens that much in the personal growth community. You know, it was such a big deal for me to, um, at the time I was living outside of Boston and I went to New York to go to the School of Womanly Arts, Mama Genius program. Uh, this is 2007, 2008. And for me, it was such a big deal to leave three children at home. One of them was under two and to go be among all these sexually expressed, powerful women. I'd really never seen anything like it. And we were in these smaller groups and we learned to brag. And my some of my best brags were things like, <laughs> I... I made dinner and I sat down with my family and I wasn't resentful. I was totally turned on. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and there'd be like no response because I was in a group of like eight right. women. And I think one or two of them had partners, but none of them were married and none of them had children. And when I would do sex brags, oh my gosh, you know, like they couldn't get enough of it. And they loved hearing about the kind of sex I was learning to have with my husband of, you know, 15 years at the time or whatever it was. But really what transformed my life I don't want to say it wasn't having that kind of sex. I, I don't want to diminish that. But what really transformed my life literally was learning to make dinner for my family and sitting down and, you know, having a kid grimace at what I was serving and me being turned on and fun to be around. Like that is how I transform my life. That is how I have the moral authority to coach long-term committed couples into emotional intimacy and sensual passion. It's not because of some of the ultra crazy experience. I'm, I'm hesitant to say, but I have whatever edgy experience anyone listening has, I have done that and more. I'll say one thing when I was, when I was, uh, <laughs> when I was 44 and I am overweight, I danced burlesque at a club in Greenwich village. That's just a mild, throwaway thing that's not I mean you know like, <laughs> so like yeah I have done incredibly edgy things and it's been good for me to know that I'm capable of that that I can push through my boundaries but really the stuff like the the real stuff which has transformed my life and has me 
no, like when I first got married, I, I fully expected to get divorced. My parents got divorced. They got divorced from their second, but like, there's just so much, you know, there's just so much that no one can take for granted. And I certainly couldn't based on my biography. And now I don't have any question about any of that, but really it's not the outrageous things that I did. It's learning to make dinner and be turned on and enjoy it. It's learning to put kids to bed and still have energy left to talk with my husband about something that's not related to kids or scheduling. It's about um, going to bed at any time and being woken by a two-year-old pulling on me and starting the day with a smile rather than a, ugh. Those are the building blocks that I draw on working with committed couples, even though even now they don't make the greatest stories. It's all that edgy stuff, which does. Right. Well, how are you able to navigate through the throes of life that often leave people battered and dragging their feet with a radiant energy and with a smile? What is it that allows you to show up in that way? What a beautiful question. Thank you. I have two things, three things that come to mind. One is that while we were incredibly far from living this way when we got married, my husband and I were very clear from when we met in 1993 that the basis of our relationship was a commitment to a mutual commitment to our own and one another's personal growth. And so there's no point at which I've wanted him or he's wanted me to stay the same. And that has really been fuel for, I mean, we look conventional, but we have not, we, we followed a spiritual con artist across the country. When, when we got into some really sticky financial times, we just up and left New England and went to rural Kansas in order to deal with it. Like, that conviction, that bond has just grown and really fueled us. So that's the first thing. The second thing is um, being willing to slow down and see what's really happening in the moment as much as I can. Because slowing down, whether it's in sex or in how I feel as I sit down at the table having made dinner, like slowing down and really aligning with whatever is in me and around me in the moment is really the most powerful catalyst. And then the third thing I want to say is um, when my daughter was six weeks old, I was speaking with my stepfather and he he has never had biological children. He started raising my brother and me when we were 10 and 8. And he said, oh, now you have an opportunity to really observe human growth and evolution. And at the time, she was six weeks old. And I had been around so many physicians who, when they became parents, were so clinical. And I found that really disgusting, actually, and a real limitation in the relationship. And so when he first said that to me, I had a 
internally a negative response because I didn't want to be looking at my incredible daughter and having any kind of a research attitude or like, you know, a kind of clinical scientific stance. But in fact, I found a way with an open heart and a very connected flavor to observe. And I think that that really has been a secret sauce as well, because, you know, so often uh, raising children, when, when kids learn to walk and talk, it's so exciting. But I have to tell you, Mike, I have yet to get to a phase of my children's development, which is not so amazing. I mean, right now I have a seven-year-old, 13, 20, and 22. And sure, the growth isn't quite as obvious physically, especially for my 22-year-old. My seven-year-old is losing teeth and so forth. So that's physical. But but watching them grow and make decisions and encounter life, it's just as mesmerizing and full of nuance. And I, I really, my main response, I mean, I sometimes am critical and have all kinds of other emotions, but fundamentally my main response is awe. And uh, that really is not any less true now than it was when each of them was born. And that I think is part of what um, provides access to radiance in the mundane aspects of life. Wow, that was one of the best pitches for having kids I think I've ever heard. <laughs> that was really great. Well, I I don't intend it as a pitch for having kids, but if it lands that way, yeah. you know, bravo. Yeah. I don't know that there's a whole lot of modeling of this available. <laughs> right. Well, so something that I was wondering as you were talking about those three things. So the first with you and your husband, this commitment to both each other's growth and your own growth. And then in watching just the evolution and growth of your children, it's just, I don't know, just appreciating the beautiful development of a human and reaching states of awe in that. It made me wonder this thread of growth. I guess, what what is growth and why does it feel so fundamental to you? Well, I hesitate for a moment because... I've also had phases, including one very recently, where I'm aware that it's easy to celebrate growth and as a consequence not experience fulfillment and satisfaction. So um, growth is definitely one of my biggest drivers, but it, it isn't as with everything, it's it's not all, uh, there's a shadow side to it, if you will, or a challenge therein. So I want to be certain of naming that because um, there have been times when my growth has been to experience more fulfillment. But what growth is to me is um, kind of the the individual's version of what happens in nature. I've certainly, I've had a lot of loss in my life and people dear to me dying. And it's, it's been easier to grip. And I think of 
gripping and hanging on to something as the opposite of growth. So I'm, I'm saying what the opposite is. Growth itself is um, openness. It's this lovely and ever-changing blending of being receptive and responsive and also proactive. Growth means really being open to what arises and also intentional about where I want to go. How's that to start with? What do you think growth is? You're a, such a growing person. Uh, I am a growing person. Yeah, I'll, let me sit with that as well for a second. For me, there's this concept of growth that has to do with shame and discomfort. And for me, it's this pursuit around doing my best to ensure that my life is not being led by fear. Because it's so, fear is so sneaky and there's all these ways that it can latch deep inside of me and give me motivations like to make this life decision because I'm, I'm afraid of what would happen if I run out of money or I'm afraid of, or, or whatever, or shame can come in as another, I think, cousin of fear. And uh, and I just feel all these ways that I'm held can be held back by being afraid of how people will view me or how people will judge me. And for me, growth is around navigating different ways to give myself freedom from fear. So sometimes, like for me, <laughs> I'm on this kick right now. Actually, this kick started, um, you, you helped kick off this kick years ago when you sent me the 30 days of rejection. Oh, yes, yes, Dude, yes. I have, that like really lit something up. I've just been finding it so fascinating and compelling to, I'm on another 30-day kick right now of uh, engaging with strangers. And there's something so beautiful from a growth orientation I find about engaging with strangers because it lights up every self-consciousness that I have, every bit of shame I have, every spot that I'm not comfortable in my skin and don't have confidence just gets lit up to the maximum when, I, <laughs> when I'm walking on the street and I stop a random person and say, hey, can I ask you a question? It's, it's like all oh, that comes up and it becomes this amazing mirror to see all the places that fear and shame are holding me back from expressing the, the fullness of my human. So I love diving into those experiences and just wading through them and then just slowly releasing the grip on that fear has on me. Yeah, I guess for me, that's what a lot of growth comes to is figuring out different ways to both let go of fear and dissolve fear and sometimes just like ram through it in order to, I guess, liberate myself to have more agency to choose the direction that I want. Yeah, you know... I, I really love that and I want to add another piece to it. It's it, it's a it's a bit of a pivot in perspective. Um, when I was practicing medicine, I was really inspired by uh, a much older physician who was this seasoned family doctor. And in family medicine, you can develop such beautiful relationships with patients, certainly in the old days when people had the same doctor for decades. But the actual medicine, for the most part, like like eighty. I'm not being precise with these numbers, but like eighty to ninety percent of the medicine is one of ten diagnoses. You know, like common cold, and you know, it it, it can be very rote. The actual medicine, and so what 
this uh, doctor shared with me is that throughout his career, he always had something that he was concentrating on learning about, or we'll say growing with. So for a while, no matter what somebody came in for, whether it was a headache, a cold, a twisted ankle, he would look at their hands. And then there was another point where uh, he looked at ears. And the way that he talked about it, I mean, this was long before I would have used any of these terms or even thought of any of this, but there's a way in which like he learned to make love with human anatomy through, I mean, not, not literally, but I mean, like he, he, um, in a, in a yearning poetic way, like he, he became so intimate with the range of human ears and the range of hands and, you know, what he could see. I don't even know what he learned because it was more the principle that he was expressing to me. And I feel like, um, Most times in my life, there's something that I'm working on and cultivating in myself. And no matter what the context is, there's an opportunity to grow that Mm. more. Yeah, I like that word cultivation. There's there's something about that that lands with me. Well, and so then I want to use that to ask about when you were talking about your commitment to your husband uh, for each other's growth, for your own growth. And I, I've seen that you've used the word conscious partnership in your writing sometimes. And yeah, I guess I'm wondering if you could describe what that means. And I'm sure it's related to this this idea of cultivating and growth. But what what distinguishes a conscious partnership from, um, I don't know what the opposite is, uh, unconscious or whatever, just a normal normal partnership? Yeah, actually... I think there are four kinds of relationships uh, and the vast majority are one of the following three. There are toxic relationships, pretty clear what that would be. Termination where either uh, people are getting divorced, splitting up, or they fully intend to. There's actually this incredible statistic, 25% of um, couples with children fully intend to split once the children leave home, even, you know, whether that's a few months, 15 years. Yeah. So termination relationship. Yeah. People who are seemingly together, but their souls are starting to separate. And then what's actually the majority of relationships is what I call the toleration relationship, where that's the one which is conflict-free and passion-free like we were speaking about earlier and um, where people learn to compromise and uh, really are tolerating things for the good of the family or whatever the case may be. So the majority of relationships are one of those three. And then there's conscious partnership where both people are aware and intentional and committed to their growth. And I, I define the conscious partnership as one where uh, the couple learns for whatever arises can be used to create more intimacy, more connection. And the other way that I would define it is that whether or not people are using this language, a conscious partnership is one in which 
both people are using the relationship as a vehicle for personal transformation. So when things aren't going well, you might feel like blaming your partner, but how is this an invitation for you to grow? And what is it that you need to cultivate in order to overcome the thing that's bothering you? I, I think that this concept that everything that happens in a relationship, if digested in a certain way, can create more connection, I think that is probably a novel idea to a lot of people out there. And so I'm wondering, for one thing you said is toleration relationships are conflict-free. And I think, yeah, I remember myself a couple years ago, I was in a relationship and my partner and I never had conflicts, and but we took pride in that. And I wouldn't take pride in that at this point. But it's like, yeah, we're we're good at not fighting. <laughs> totally, yeah. And I can you, I guess, flush out how can conflict lead to connection? Yeah. So I just want to be super clear. Like, um, I mean, sure, there's there's uh, consent and agreements around BDSM and different kinds of things, and that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm about to say that I'm not advocating violence or anything like that, but. Or, or any kind of abuse either. In fact, one of the um, articles I've written, which has been really popular, it's on my website. It's, uh, as, as we talk, I'm actually, I don't recall the exact title, but I'm going to pull it up because I, I love the title and I want to get it right. So um, I'll share that. But anyway, one of the things that I feel really strongly about is that I would say far and away the most common relationship advice that people are given is to learn to compromise. And, you know, marriage is all about compromise and you have to learn to compromise. And I just don't believe that at all. And I think of the conflict-free relationship as the natural product of learning to compromise. So the name of my article is Turns Out That Compromise Isn't the Key to a Happy Relationship After All. And I don't think people should fight for the sake of fighting, but conflict-free usually means that you don't want to rock the boat. You don't want to bring forth what you really desire because it might not work for your partner. And that's what I think is a problem because if you are holding back uh, saying something or holding back a desire or just generally holding back to keep the peace, to have no conflict and make sure things are comfortable for your partner. It, again, how you do anything is how you do everything. And if that's how you're choosing a restaurant, for example, not saying you really want to go have steak because your partner is a vegan, then you really, when it comes to sensuality and sexuality, we are not, we don't have some magic switch inside of us. If you are holding back and not bringing the fullness of who you are and what you want into the relationship when discussing really where you live, which restaurant, how you organize the closet, I don't know. I'm just trying to think of like the whole range of things that might come up. If you hold back and prioritize equanimity and not ruffling your partner's feathers, then you don't actually have access to the fullness of yourself and all of your passion in the bedroom. So if nothing else, if you want to have 
consuming, gratifying, delicious, sensual, sexual communion, then you can't be compromising and mousy the rest of the time. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a really cool framework. Because So part of what I get about that is compromise, the way that it's often thought of is actually just people muting their own desires. And and then there's this cool idea that like, I mean, obviously good sex is great in and of itself because it feels good and is connecting. But part of what I'm hearing also is that the sexual component of a relationship can be a maybe like a microcosm of the rest of it. So if it's passionless sexually, that's speaking to some uh, some other way that there's a disconnect disconnection in the greater uh, relationship. Is that a fair reflection? Yes, it is. And, and it, I mean, it, it goes both ways because often when couples aren't having, they're either not having sex very often, like six months, two years, the longest uh, for clients of mine, it was 13 years since they had last had sex, um, or they're having sex and it's not like really nourishing for both of them. That's actually one of the most common things that couples reach out to t- for help with. And when we work on just learning, you know, that they stop compromising in basic ways and in learn to be really honest and vulnerable and authentic and uncompromising, not in what the other person does, but in sharing what your desire is. Most of the time, I don't end up actually getting too explicit in the sexual realm because that has just taken care of itself. Like literally about 80% of the time people come thinking that they're going to get some form of sex therapy. And I'm certainly skilled and capable and willing to give it. But when we focus on each person showing up unapologetically as they are in communication outside of the bedroom, that just translates right into the bedroom seamlessly. And then there are some times when there are, it is important to bring specific attention to the bedroom and that's fine, but it just isn't actually needed a lot of the time. And when I first started doing this work, it it surprised me. Like I'd have that moment where we'd been working through how they really are honest and fully themselves with one another. And then I thought, okay, and now we'll start talking about sex. And they're like, oh, no, no, that's great. (laughs) One thing I'm wondering, if you've dealt with couples with that haven't had hot sexual chemistry, and part of that is men with some psychological challenge with their penis, whether uh, they don't get erect when they want to, or they don't come and they feel pressure on it. And I asked this because I've begun to work in sexuality with men and I really like it. And I'm just noticing there's so many angles to address these things. There's like, I don't know, the neo-tantric angle of practicing self-pleasure and getting more attuned to your own pleasure and body and sexual energy. But then there's also like actually diving into the desires you want. And actually it's because you wanted your partner to whip you and you have really strong, you know, kinky desires that you weren't sharing or, or what have you. But I'm wondering in your experience when couples challenges are related, sexual challenges are related to men and their insecurities or whatever around their penis or performance, has that tended to work itself out through 
the type of just full-fledged communication all around in a relationship that you're speaking to? Uh, the short answer is yes, but I need to give a little more context. So I'm hearing your question as pertinent in a couple with a man and a woman. And so I'll answer it that way. Uh, and there are unique things that happen in a long-term committed relationship and that, that are different for, for people who are dating or whatever the scenario is. And um, that's particularly because um, <clears throat> the couple gets into patterns and each of them activates their compensatory behavior. And in a situation where the man is not macho and overbearing, often women their compensatory response is to become controlling and directive and managerial. And I've actually experienced many times where a woman will reach out to me and say that her man isn't actually interested in working on things. And I'll say, well, ask if he'd be willing to have a conversation with me. No further commitment, just a conversation with me. And then he and I get on the phone and I have yet, well, okay, that's not true. There's one exception. But but for the most part, I don't experience that they're unwilling to work. It's just that things are set up in such a way that there is not a win-win dynamic in the relationship. And so he takes his attention off. He disconnects. He feels no matter what he does, his woman isn't happy. And then he kind of like, I don't mean literally, literally would be okay, but metaphorically he crawls under the covers and just buries himself with his insecurities, his performance anxiety. And so all of the issues around his penis and erection and being able to pleasure his woman, like that just all gets buried very, very deep. And until I'm in a conversation with him and I realize, oh, he's totally willing to work. He wants things to be different. He's up for the challenge. They just need guidance from somebody else because in the dynamic between them, she's right and he's wrong. In fact, that's something else I want to say. And I also know this from my own marriage. Uh, once we realized it, we used to joke about it, but in response to our challenges, I developed a superiority complex and my husband developed an inferiority complex. And it doesn't always work that way with the genders, but that's the most common one that I see. And so, um, okay, coming around again, if someone has erectile dysfunction or um, some influential wounding with their sexuality, then yeah, you know, that there needs to be room for that man to work that through. But there's no room for that when the focus is on how he can't do it right. And that is often where the focus is in committed relationships. Right. 
Ah, awesome. Wow. Thanks for sharing. And yeah, it just makes me see like sex is such a different thing for people in committed partnerships, for single people exploring, for people. It's just, it's almost an entirely different entity depending on the context. And we're at time here. And uh, Alexandra, I'm wondering where can folks find you and for what reasons might they want to look you up? Well, love how you asked that, Mike. Uh, really, anybody who is either in a committed relationship or anticipates being in one at some point in the future, I really invite you to um, come to my website and get on my email list because every week I'm sharing things from my life experience from my clients and um, it, it, I probably will make it into a book eventually because I'm very generous in what I, what I share with that. And also, um, so my website is alexandrastockwell.com and I want to offer anyone listening um, a, a gift I've written out the six qualities of conscious partnership. And I think for anyone, whether you're in a relationship or not, it's just an interesting read. And I list the six qualities and their qualities that you can play with in your daily life. And so for that, it would be um, www.alexandrastockwell, A-L-E-X-A-N-D-R-A-S-T-O- C-K-W-E-L-L dot com forward slash six Q and it's the number six and then Q for the six qualities of conscious partnership. Splendid. And I will post those links just below this. Okay, wonderful. Well, Alexandra, thanks for taking the time to meet uh, your I, I really appreciate it. I appreciate the impact that you've had in my life personally. And and it made a lot of sense to me when you said that you can deliver your kids' foods with a smile just because I felt you didn't just feel like present in this connection in the past hours. So you just felt really happy to be here. And I, I really appreciate that. Well, Mike, as as I told you before we got on, I'm just so impressed with you and how you... Um, are using your curiosity for all of your listeners' benefit. It's really a treat to be in conversation with you. Thanks, Alexandra. Hey, friends. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you got something out of this episode. I know that I sure had a blast with it. If you enjoy this podcast, please head over to iTunes and give it a five-star rating. I'm offering an exchange right now where, if it feels in alignment for you to give this podcast five stars then send me a message on Facebook, let me know you did it, and then I'll sit down, take some time to grok your profile, and I will write you a thoughtful and sincere compliment. Truly, please take me up on it. And if this episode touched on something you think a friend might find titillating, pass it on to them too. And I just want to say, I bring my utmost sincerity to each of these conversations, and I really do want to spread vibes and information that cause people to reflect and deepen and just live a more honest, kind, and vivacious life. Because I really believe that the state of the world needs everything that we can give it. It needs people to be at full capacity. It needs people to be living their life fully and giving their greatest positive impact to humanity. And so if I can just flick over one domino with this podcast that flicks over a couple more, 
that lead people into living their life fully and giving back to the earth, then by Jove, man, I will be a happy dude. So trying to do my part here and any help, love, and support, I would just so greatly appreciate. And at the very least, I am super appreciated that you listened to this episode and much love, folks. I'll see you next time.